Well, then, with a view to the help of God, let's uh, turn uh, to that passage again in John chapter 4. And we'll take as our text uh, this morning and again tonight the words of verse 19, where the woman says to the Saviour, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Now we're returning then to this very uh, profound meeting between uh, Christ and this Samaritan woman. And over the past uh, few weeks we've seen how the Lord has brought them together and why he brought them together. He has brought a lost, thirsty soul to the well and he has also brought the one who carries the water of life. And it's God's purpose that these two should meet and that Christ should give her the gift of eternal life. Now, that is a process. And some people wonder at what point this woman is converted. I would think it is considerably late on that she is actually converted, but we don't always know these things. We can't necessarily tell the moment when God's life comes into another person's life. We only know it when it clearly reveals itself. And I don't think at any point we can clearly detect that. But it's very plain that before the day is out, this woman's life has been changed because that was the point in meeting her. And the same is true in connection with the other residents of the town too, as we'll see another time. So God has brought a thirsty soul and a a life-giving saviour together. And perhaps indeed he does the same thing even this morning itself bringing a thirsty soul to a saviour and may the two meet. And last time particularly we saw Christ introducing himself to her as the one who brings God's gift of eternal life. He said to her in verse 10, if you knew the gift of God Now, some people understand by that expression Christ himself. In other words, if you knew me and my identity as God's gift to the world. Now, there's no doubt that Christ is God's gift to the world. No doubt about that. But I don't think that that is what the Saviour is referring to. I think the gift that he's speaking of there is the gift of eternal life. If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink. In other words, if you knew my identity as the one who brings you that gift of God, the one who brings you that eternal life, you would have asked him for a drink. Instead of me asking you for one, you would have asked me and I would have given you living water. And as we saw The way we receive Christ's gift of eternal life is simply by receiving him, by coming to him in faith. And as we do so, we discover that his Holy Spirit enters our hearts and unites us to Christ himself, brings the very life of Christ into our hearts so that we have eternal life 
And this life within us is compared with a perpetual um, irrigating stream that flows in our heart always, even unto eternal life, to meet every need that our thirsty souls have. And we saw what they are, thirst for love, for love, thirst for joy, and a thirst for peace, a thirst for meaning, and so on. Well, the Holy Spirit, bringing us the life of Christ, brings us all these things. Now then, we come to the woman's response. And I think in fairness, in the whole encounter, this is the part that's actually the most difficult to understand. Because she says to him, after he describes uh, the water of life and the gift of God, she says in verse 15, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst nor come here to draw. What does she mean by that? What is she thinking? What is she expressing? It would be easier to evaluate if she hadn't said the last bit. In other words, if she had only said, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst, it would be easier to understand. In other words, we would take it as a very spiritual statement. In other words, she would be saying, I understand that you are speaking to me of eternal life, which I really need. And if you give me that, I will never thirst again. In other words, even if she doesn't really know what eternal life is, and even if she doesn't know exactly how this man in front of her can give it to her, she still knows that she wants it. And for her, this higher life is a life that she knows she doesn't have, but she really wants. Again, she has, as we've seen, this consciousness of immortality, this profound sense of dissatisfaction, a consciousness deep down in her heart that he is a, she is a sinner and that she is not reconciled to God. She is conscious to some degree of all these things, and she wants something better in life than she has. That's what I would call just a first-level seeker. Uh, the word seeker can be used to describe people in different ways. There are second-level seekers. There are, there are some who are seekers after God who actually know God. Uh, they know exactly the one they want. It's just that they don't understand yet that they have him. They appreciate him. They love him. And they desire him. And they're not really aware that they have him. They have already found him. But this first-level seeker is not like that. She's looking for something. She doesn't know exactly what, but she's looking for something. There are lots of people like that. In fact, I would venture to say that to some extent everybody is like that. It's just that at some times it becomes more acute and more plain in their experience. She's a first-level seeker. You're speaking of something better than what I've got in life. Give it to me. So it's possible that that's what she means. And even... If you take the last part of the verse, verse 15, where she says, she says, give me this water that I may not thirst, nor come here to draw, you could even understand that as meaning that I don't come out this way to draw anymore. A lonely woman, at 12 noon when nobody else is here, as someone whose life is broken and falling apart. You could understand it like that. But I don't think, friends, that that's really what she means. I think it seems more likely that 
what the Lord has said has just gone over her head. And I think it's the last part of the verse that really clinches that for us. She says, give me this water that I may not thirst nor come here to draw. She's still thinking of wells and water pots and fresh springs of water. You remember when the Lord had spoken to her initially of a living water, she, she thought of springs, a spring that was perhaps underneath the well or a spring that was located somewhere else. And it seems that her mind is still not moved away from that. That, that, that reminds us of how natural the natural man is and uh, how difficult it is for us to latch on to the spirituality of the Word of God. It's not too far removed from the way Nicodemus had responded in the previous chapter when the Lord had spoken to him about the need to be born again and all that that entailed. Nicodemus just doesn't understand what he's speaking about. It's not because he's unintelligent, it's just that his mind is just somehow not moving on that plane. And it's not moving on that plane because he hasn't been born again. The natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God. There has to be a touch inside. There has to be an awakening power of God to enable us to just understand what the Bible is really talking about. And that's a reminder to us that even souls that are thirsty don't always latch on to the Word of God right away. Not until the Spirit of God opens it out for them. And uh, sometimes it's surprising how people can maybe, maybe this has been through in your own experience, you've kept going to church and there was no defect in the preaching of it. And there's certainly no defect in the preaching of it here because the Lord's ideas of salvation are very clear in his own mind and everything he says, he says well, but still there's an inability to process it. So it doesn't matter what comes across, there's still a a basic level of understanding that's not there. Wells and water pots and springs when the Lord is talking about eternal life. Um, But the Lord doesn't leave it at that. He doesn't turn away and say, well, this woman is still dead. The Lord knows that God took her there. The Lord knows too that that's why he had to go through Samaria. He knows these things. Very clear in these things. So he's to keep dealing with this woman. Just as he kept dealing with Nicodemus. He knew that the Lord's Spirit had taken Nicodemus that night to meet with him. By night, in secret. But he knew that the Spirit of God had taken him there. So even though he spoke to Nicodemus about the need to be born again. And Nicodemus didn't understand, but Nicodemus says, I I want to know more. I want to know more about the Messiah. You'll remember what Jesus said. If I have told you earthly things and you don't believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? But then remember that he goes on to tell him these heavenly things. Anyway, because the Spirit of the Lord would work in his time. And so, indeed, he did. And the same is true here. Christ knows that she's there for a purpose. And he's there for a purpose. And as long as she's got ears, he'll speak. And so he doesn't walk away from the well. Neither, interestingly, does she. 
But I want you to notice what the Lord does do. He shifts the conversation away from water. And he begins to show her herself and God. Which is what any true prophet would do. It's what any minister of the gospel would do. It's what you as a Christian must do when you are witnessing or sharing the gospel to friends or neighbours. You must somehow show them themselves and show them God. When I was thinking about this, I was uh, reminded of a story that most people were familiar with years ago, although it's probably gone out of circulation. It concerns Reverend Hector MacPhail, who was a minister in the Black Isle in the 19th or maybe even the late 18th century. But he was travelling from, from the Black Isle to Edinburgh and he stopped at an inn outside King Usi. And um, he was conducting worship there that night and uh, he noticed a, a maid, a maid servant, and uh, he started to speak to her. And um, after speaking to her for a while, he said to her, I'm going to leave you with a simple prayer, he said, and I just want you to pray this prayer every day until I see you again, because he was coming back, of course, from Edinburgh. So he left her with the prayer, show me myself. He discovered in the conversation with her that she knew some things of God and so on, but at a basic level was quite ignorant. He said to her, you just pray this prayer, show me myself. Now, some weeks afterwards, he was coming back from his business in Edinburgh, and he stopped at the same inn. And the same girl was there. He asked after her and he met with her. And she told him that ever since she had started that prayer that she had become so distressed with, with herself. She felt that God was showing her things about her own life that, that were distressing her. And he said, well, that's all very well, he says. No, I want you to pray this prayer. Show me yourself. Show me yourself. Of course, the good man meant by that, show me yourself as the gracious God and the Saviour. Show me yourself like that. Not the God who reveals sin and judges it, but the God who forgives sin and covers it. Show me that. He didn't go into all that detail, but just show me yourself. Sometimes we can say too much. These people had faith in God and what God was able to accomplish and what God would accomplish through prayer too. Sure, the good man prayed over that seed, having sown it, so the girl starts to pray, show me yourself. And of course she begins to see the wonder of God saving sinners through Christ Jesus and she comes to faith. But that sums it all up. I mean, we need to know ourselves, know thyself, and we need to know God. As Calvin reminds us at the beginning of the Institutes, religion begins with knowing ourselves. As fallen, needy, the earthly things. Uh, needing to be reconciled to God, our Maker. Now Christ begins to teach her about herself and God. And of course he begins with herself. And he begins with what we could call the S-word, which is sin. And I call it the S-word because it's unmentionable. Nobody wants to talk about it. And it's offensive to talk about it. But of course it's vital to talk about it. However, thirsty our souls are for love and joy and peace we'll never get these things properly unless the problem of sin is dealt with 
She can't just come to God as an empty person needing fulfillment. She's got to come to God as a sinful person needing forgiveness. And we all need to understand that. And even in many churches, this is forgotten. There is an emphasis on coming to Christ to find some kind of fulfillment. And then it becomes little like, a bit like joining a club or something like that. But that's not what it's all about. The fulfillment that God gives only comes in certain ways. And it deals with root matters. And the root problem in our heart is actually sin. The root problem is not that we're lacking love or lacking peace or lacking joy. These are symptoms. Symptoms. And God's not going to deal with symptoms. He doesn't want ourselves to deal with symptoms. He's not giving sticking plasters to people. He wants a radical reformation of heart and life. And that's why sin has to come out and it needs to be dealt with. You and I, friends, need forgiveness and the reconciliation that forgiveness brings with God. That's the start of everything. That's the start of new life. That and nothing short of that. That, of course, involves repentance. Receiving forgiveness involves confessing your sin and turning from it. And that's why it's important to know what's wrong with us exactly. What is it that we need to do ourselves? When we're coming to embrace Christ, what is it that we need to change and what is it that we need to forsake? Because there's no doubt that we do. I mean, when the Lord himself started to preach, the very first recorded words that Christ spoke in the Gospel, leaving aside what he said at 12 years of age, which is not relevant to this, but once he was called, the first words that are spoken are repent and believe the gospel. Now, you'll be familiar, some of you anyway, with the fact that the, the Greek word repent means just to change, to turn around. Change and believe the gospel. Believing the gospel is part of that change. You, your whole life turns as you embrace the Saviour. But turn from what? Turn from what? Turn to what? Well, you turn from sin to obedience. From sin to holiness, if you like. And as Jesus himself taught us, when the Holy Spirit comes, he will convict the world of sin. That's the first thing he does. Jesus taught that when the Holy Spirit comes, he will convict the world of sin, then of righteousness and of judgment. But sin first. That's through on the corporate level. If, if God was to return here to this island in power, there would be a teaching about sin, first of all. There would be a conviction of sin. I think it was here, I was referring to the last national revival that took place in Scotland. It was here, I think it might even have been last week. And uh, I remember reading accounts of that revival in the late 1850s when uh, people began to gather to pray through the week and very often little was said in prayer meetings uh, because people were so gripped with a sense of having sinned before God and needing God in their lives 
needing God's forgiveness and his renewal in their lives. The, the, the presence of the Holy Spirit brought this profound sense of sinnership before God. It's not a comfortable thing. It's not comfortable for ministers, therefore, to preach sins and the need to see sins. It's not comfortable for you, perhaps, to have your sin opened out or unfolded before you, but it's necessary. I think we all know in life that you can never move forward unless you deal with whatever the problem is. It's true in every area of life. How much more so with this? We need a saviour first, not a friend, not a counsellor. We need a friend, we need a counsellor, but primarily a saviour. It's in that capacity that we need to find Christ first. That's why every preacher of the gospel should preach the law of God, the Ten Commandments, the holiness of God. We looked at John the Baptist a minute ago, and when John began to preach, something happened. There was a stirring amongst the people from north to south, and multitudes. It had been 400 years since that. A living prophet had come from God, someone with a, with a new word. That doesn't mean that there was no proper preacher or nobody to hear, but John the Baptist came uh, with a new and fresh revelation from God. But he also came with distinctive power because the Lord had equipped him in the wilderness to preach. And the people began to pour out for baptism. And eventually, even some of the Pharisees themselves came out for baptism. And of course, John confronts them and said, what are, what are you doing coming for baptism? Bring forth fruit in your life worthy of repentance and then we can talk about baptism. Show me that you really want to know this God. Show me that you need new life. Show me that you're willing to forsake your formalism and your self-righteousness. Show me the covetousness too which was so much a marked feature of the Pharisee's life. Show me Fruits worthy of repentance, he says. And don't say to me that we are children of Abraham. Don't say that to me. I couldn't help but be struck when I was thinking about all these things, about how baptism has been approached for a long time in, in many churches, in the islands, and indeed everywhere. Uh, put it this way. Someone comes for baptism. And let's say the response is, why are you coming for baptism? Is there, is there fruit worthy of repentance in your life? And they say, no, but we are children of such and such a grandfather or such and such a grandmother. I've heard such a thing myself. Here comes a person for baptism. There's no fruit of repentance in the life, but... Somebody will say, oh, I, I remember their father and I remember their, their grandfather and great-grandfather. And, and these are worthy things. They're not unimportant things, but they're not a qualification for baptism. They're not a qualification. They never were, and neither are they here. Don't say to yourselves or to me that we are children of Abraham, but bring forth fruit worthy of repentance. And then you will be baptised. And of course it's interesting what then happens because we're told a lot of the common people came and said, what shall we do then? And John said, well, if you've got two tunics, he says, 
Give one to the one who has need. I'm the same with food. He's, he's meeting the people at the point of covetousness and selfishness. Greed. Which, by the way, always abounds when the Spirit of God departs. Uh, there's always a connection between these two things, and it's, it's quite often struck me, reading into history and even looking at the present day, when the Spirit of God departs, there is a, a surfeit of greed and selfishness. John says, I want to see changes at the practical level. The tax collectors came and said, well, well, what are we supposed to do? He said, stop fleecing the people. Because the tax collectors were fleecing the people. People like Zacchaeus had made himself fantastically rich because he was essentially extorting money in addition to the tax that he should be getting. The soldiers said, what should we do? John the Baptist said, stop intimidating people, which soldiers always did. In other words, they abused their authority, getting people to do things for them. Stop intimidating people. Stop making false accusations and be content with your wages because the soldiers were forever complaining about their poor wages and John said, stop it. Now, notice how intensely practical repentance is. You notice that? How practical I think repentance is. Becoming a Christian involves decisions. Lifestyle changes. It's not believing in Jesus and going home and just being as you were before. That's not Christianity. It passes for it in some quarters, but it's not actually Christianity. Now, it's the same with this woman. By the way, John warned them that unless they would change like that, the consequences were dire. He said, the axe is being laid at the root of the trees. God's judgment is coming. Every tree that does and bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And he says, I'm baptizing you with water. But he says, the one who is coming after me is going to baptize with Holy Spirit and fire. And what's more, he says, he's got a, a winnowing. He's sifting. He's sifting the people. And he will clean his threshing floor. He will gather the wheat into his own bar, bar once he's sifted the people. But he will burn the chaff with unquenchable fire. The consequences are huge. Now the same is true for this woman. He brings before her her sins too. He actually just brings one sin before her, first of all, anyway. And he does it by simply saying, go call your husband. Where did that come from? What's, what's that got to do with anything? What's it got to do with the living water that they've been speaking about? Nothing, or at least not directly. Go and call your husband. He does this knowing that she doesn't have a husband and that she's had five. But you notice how he goes about it. I think it's worth noting that he goes about it in a very tender and compassionate way. There were times when the Lord spoke very bluntly very forthrightly. But you, you'll notice in his one-to-one -one dealings that there's a lot of tenderness and compassion. And there's, there's compassion in this. Even though this woman is in the situation that she's in, well, he just goes round it like this. Go and get your husband. She said, I don't have one. She says, that's correct. 
because you've had five and the one you have now is not your husband. There's no upbraiding, there's no going over the top, there's no piling it on, just a laying it bare. And very often when the Spirit of God comes upon ourselves too, as usually as the word is read or preached, uh, God will open up one sin for us. One sin. You usually find yourself guilty of one sin before you find yourself a real sinner. I was speaking about this at the prayer meeting some time ago, how God works from the particular through to the general, because that's how our minds work. That's how it goes philosophically. We, we get an idea of the general by getting an idea of particulars. For example, when David was confessing his sin in Psalm 51, it's one sin that bothered him. But then as he thinks, it goes deeper and further. My mother also <coughs> me conceived in guiltiness and sin. First of all, it was simply against the this great evil and this great sin but then it's everywhere and it's all over the place now I've known people who have been converted because God just took one sin home to them first now I can think of one where it was failing to keep the Lord's day perhaps a person had just started desecrating that day working on it or following amusement or recreation or something it can be the sin of swearing an unclean mouth or lying maybe irreverence in worship sexual immorality of some kind possibly adultery maybe something less than adultery but still nonetheless sexual immorality but when the when the perfect law of God comes before you there are so many ways in which you can be transgressing it anyway but God usually hones in on one thing and he takes that thing to the light of his holiness and you see yourself as guilty. Guilty. As the psalmist says in Psalm 90, you have set our secret sins in the light of your countenance. Now we'd like to think of our sins behind God's back. But there he says, you set our secret sins in the light of your countenance. Now the light of the countenance there means uh, the searching, examining light. You, you, you found them. You, you brought them out. And what's more, it is brought out in the sense of judgment. Uh, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Literally in the Hebrew, you shall have no other gods before my face, in front of my face. It's the God who sees, the God who searches, the God who judges, the God who examines. And she's conscious, just, just like that, that her life has been exposed by the man of God in front of her. Now, she knows him to be a prophet. Sir, she says, I perceive that you are a prophet. Now, she doesn't say the prophet, neither does she say the Christ. In fact, she has no idea that this is the Christ. She says a little later on, I know that the Messiah is coming who is called the Christ, and when he comes, he will tell us all things. So she doesn't suspect that this is the Christ, but she's aware that there's something about him. This is like Isaiah or Jeremiah or 
even the prophets of her own territory, the Samaritan prophets, the prophets who lived and worshipped and prophesied in her own place, like Elijah and like Elisha, the prophets of the north. She knows he's a prophet because he's said to her, and he knows something about her that only God himself could have revealed. This is a Jew from nowhere. She's had no dealings with Jews. Jews have had no dealings with her. And here is this man telling something that's intimately true about herself. But God still does that. He still does that. He does it through the word. And that's why sometimes you are in church and you feel yourself identified. Now the preacher hasn't actually identified you. At least not intentionally so. Sometimes it can be so um, so accurate uh, and just so personal that you feel that, that the preacher was briefed. I had an instance of that actually not too long ago myself, quite a remarkable one, where uh, two people were having a conversation, a Christian and a non-Christian, they were having a conversation in a car on the way to church and the conversation was absolutely addressed by everything that was said in, in the pulpit that day. I knew nothing of it at all. Nothing of it at all. But that's never the point. God did. God did. And that person knew and couldn't get away from the fact that God had spoken to them. Now, we can be conscious of that in different ways. There are times that just, well, something happens above and beyond what we think is happening in church. What, what, what's happening here normally is that the word is opened and the truth is preached and it comes to us and perhaps we go home. I hope it's not just like that. There's more to it. But sometimes there is so much more to it. Sometimes you're acutely conscious that something has taken hold of you and gripped you and it's addressed you personally and it's as though the secret of your own heart is being revealed and your own life is being opened and exposed. You feel perhaps that everybody knows it. Actually, nobody knows it but yourself, really. It's actually between you and God, although it's happening in public. He calls his own sheep by name. And he does that even in a crowded space. He calls his own sheep by name and they hear his voice and they follow him. And here Christ just tenderly opens up her sinful condition. Now, there's far more to this than meets the eye. And we're liable to miss it because we're too quick to, to move on. I mean, when you read the narrative here, and scriptural narratives are often compressed, when you read the narrative here, you get the sense that the minute her sin is exposed, that she says, Sir, I perceive you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you Jews say that Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. So you get the feeling that she moves straight on to talk about religion and worship. But we shouldn't assume the conversation has moved so fast. This is a slow conversation. We know it's slow for a few reasons. First of all, because in her approach to the well, she doesn't want to speak. He's not speaking to her. They're only seven and a half feet apart because you can still see the well where it is today. He's sitting exhausted beside the well. She's determined to do what she's going to do and she's going away. So she goes through the process of putting down the heavy water pot and of drawing the water pot up a significant distance. Nothing is said. 
until he just says, give me a drink. She has to stop and think. Is she going to respond? Is she going to do it? Well, we saw how she deals with that. But once the Lord raises this question of who she is, what her lifestyle has been like, and the five broken or failed marriages, and the fact that she's now living with somebody, do you think she just says, I perceive you're a prophet, like that? No, I don't think she does. And one reason we have for concluding that she doesn't is that later on, when she leaves her water pot beside the well and uh, goes her way into the city, she meets the people of the village and she says, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. When did that happen? As far as we know from the Bible here, Christ told her one thing she did, really. Just the state of her marriage. Married life. Seems quite obvious here what's happened. Well, it's true that maybe the Lord said more that's not recorded. That's always possible. But I think, to be honest, friend, that what happens here is something profoundly spiritual that can take a bit of time. And that is that the searchlight of God's word accompanied by the Holy Spirit just goes deep into her heart and you feel you're exposed you feel you're exposed she's so conscious of it that she stops even seeing her sin as as one thing or a consecutive series of things that she's done or even her existing relationship with the one that she's with, it just goes deeper than that everything I ever did I'm a sinner I don't know God. I've never known God. I've always been taught about God. I know people go to temples and they worship. I know all that. Some say you should worship here and some say you should worship there. I know all that. But I've never searched all that out. I've never searched it out for myself. I know I'm unhappy. I know I'm unfulfilled. I know deep down that there is a God. I know I'm a sinner, but I've taken it no further than that. And now she really feels sick. Sick with sin. And she feels like David did when the searchlight of God's word came upon her. Thou hast searched me and known me. My sitting down, my rising up, all my thoughts, the words I speak before I form them on the tongue, they are all known to you. David is conscious at a time like that of the presence of God and of the power of God. Just as we can be when God so chooses it. Sometimes it's all very run of the mill. Worship today is like yesterday. Church was like the week before. But sometimes the power of God so comes upon you that you are searched out and known. God is here and God knows it. And for her, God knows everything. The, the God who knows this about me knows everything about me. The God who's told the prophet that is the God who knows everything else. Everything else. And it's not one thing that's opened up before her, it's everything that's opened up. And what's more, she knows that the God who knows it judges it. The, the eye that's looking at her is a flame of fire. And it's setting her secret sins, as we saw, in the light of his countenance. 
It isn't comfortable to know you're a sinner before a holy God. But it's a vital first step. The important thing is that you that you don't stop there. And that's the interesting thing about this woman. Uh, she doesn't actually stop there. Now, I alluded to this, and I'm just closing, but I alluded to this last time. You'll remember the other woman who was before the Saviour, the woman who was caught in adultery. Those who were going to throw the stones at her um, after following no due process of Mosaic justice, uh, they all went out convicted by their conscience one by one. In other words, the Lord spoke to them about their fitness for judging, and, and they all went out one by one. Now, the woman <coughs> could have walked away, of course, could she not? She could have walked away. No formal accusations are made, no court. It's finished. It's over. But strangely, however, it's not finished. Because she knows that the person in front of her can condemn her. She knows that the person in front of her knows the truth. And she's been brought by the power of God to that place where she needs his forgiveness. Blessedly the Lord pronounces it. Neither do I condemn thee, he says. Go and sin no more. But there's this magnetic spiritual power that just keeps her rooted to Christ's presence. Now the same is going on here. She could have walked away. I don't need this. I don't need someone telling me about my life or I, I, I can do without this I'll go back where I was. She can't, she can't go back where she was. She's going to stay exactly where she is. She's got a prophet and the prophet has shown her herself. Well, what more can he show me then? Because once you've discovered that you're sick and once the Lord starts to show you that you're really sick, you'll want a cure. And I'm quite sure there was a long pause between what Christ said to her and her saying, you are a prophet. Now she says, tell me this. Our fathers worshipped here on this mountain, and you Jews say that Jerusalem is the place where you should worship. These are, these are not foolish questions. They're taken by some to be a diversionary tactic. And I alluded to that the first time we looked at this passage. We do use things like that as diversionary tactics. You've become personal, let me talk general. You're talking about my sin, let's talk about religion. People do that. But that's not actually what's going on here. She's feeling uncomfortable. And she wants a cure. If this man really knows her heart, if this man is really representing God, let this man then tell her, how she can be right with God, how she should worship God, where she should worship God. You've shown me myself, now show me God. And Christ, of course, will take the opportunity to do exactly that because that's what prophets do. They love to show us ourselves, but more than that, they love to show us God. That will take us tonight to what the Lord has to say about God and about worship. Let's stand to pray. Eternal God, we are thankful that in the process of time you showed us ourselves and uh, none of us had anything to glory in. We all have our sins 
and our reasons for shame. And no one knows the half of what is true in connection with that. We would all hide ourselves from others if the truth were to be known. But we bless you that you took things to light in order for them to be dealt with. And you introduced us to the one who is able to give us healing. And not only to wash away the guilt of our sins, but to give us the water of life, to really quench our thirst. We are conscious that much of this woman's own sin may have been attempt uh, to quench the thirst in her own life. When in reality, sin is never the answer to sin. And sin can never solve sin. And sin can never make any sin better. Oh, help us to come to the true source of living water. To come to the Saviour and the new life and the forgiveness that he brings. Help us tonight to uh, discover more of this God and how we may draw near to him. We ask these things in the name of our precious Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's um, sing from God's Word in conclusion in Psalm 32. psalm begins at the, at the end, really, of the experience of David here when he looks back at the forgiveness God gave him. Blessed is the man to whom is freely pardoned all the transgression he hath done, whose sin is covered. Now, he had tried to cover his own sins, but now he discovers that God covers them. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord imputeth not his sin. It's not reckoned in your account anymore. And that's paralleled with a a new life in whose spirit there is no guile, um, no deceit in connection with God, no fraud is found therein, openness and honesty. And then he reflects on the very reverse of that when he, his sin was undealt with and unconfessed. When as I did refrain my speech and silent was my tongue, my bones then waxed old because I roared all day long. He even felt it in his body. Everything just became a drag in his life. Why? Because upon me day and night thine hand did heavy lie, so that my moisture turned his in summer's drought thereby. He felt his life was drying up, just completely. But here's the cure. I thereupon have unto thee my sin acknowledged, and likewise my iniquity I have not covered. Stop covering it. Instead, I will confess unto the Lord my trespasses said I, and of my sin thou freely didst forgive the iniquity. um, Let's sing just the last four of these stanzas. Uh, We'll sing verses three to five. Four stanzas, stanza to sing. Let us, I do pray, my speech and silence. 